Today, actually, we're going to look at Christmas. So if you have a Bible, would you open to two passages, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and John chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to read the passage in Hebrews. It's a short passage. I'll read it through a a couple of times, kind of fix it in our minds. And then uh, we're really going to just keep our Bibles open to John 1. You may want to keep a finger there in in Hebrews uh, if if you want to refer back to something. But I think you'll be able to keep most of it in in your head. Um, I was having an interaction with somebody uh, a while back, and uh, the conversation ranged over all kinds of stuff. Eventually got to kind of reminiscing and and looking back on high school days, that kind of thing. And um, they were telling about their own high school experience. They'd gone to a Christian school that was kind of a small school, part of an association of schools that were all over the place. And and, uh, as one of the things that they would do for the students is they'd have these gatherings regionally and then nationally where uh, one of the things was basically a talent show. And so you'd get to go do your uh, talent. And uh, if you did well, you'd pass from the state or regional level and represent your area at the national level. And so this person wound up in a singing group Uh, as part of the talent show. Now, they didn't consider themselves to be particularly a great singer, but when you're in a small school, you just kind of do what you have to do to kind of work together. And so they they went and they did their performance before the judges at the state regional level. And they would give awards for the top three uh, acts, I guess you could say, the top three acts, first place, second place, third place. And then first and second place got to go on and represent the region in the national setting. So they did their performance, and later on when the prizes were announced, they were actually very surprised to hear that they had won third place. And they were particularly surprised because they were the only act that performed in that particular arena. So there was only one act. And they got third place. And what the, um, what the judges were saying, I think, was, please don't let the rest of the country know you're from here. Please don't represent us. Thank you for your effort. Thank you for your hard work. You have a great future in some other field of endeavor. <laughs> right? Now, that would be a very odd, to say the least, moment if you're one of the students there. But as I've been thinking about that, I think there's probably uh, moments for all of us where we actually kind of feel like life is that way. Like um, we're coming in third place and there's no first and second place in front of us. Like if, if, if we're being evaluated, uh, the evaluation is uh, just thanks for the effort, but you've got a great future somewhere else, someplace else, something else. Uh, but please don't let anyone know we're, we're really associated. Um, I, I think some of us probably struggle a lot of our lives feeling like we belong, feeling like we measure up, feeling like we're accepted, right? We're never the cool kids, and we want to hang out with the cool kids, and they never seem to be interested in us. And that doesn't change. I mean, that may be high school kind of dynamic, but that's the dynamic through every age of life. I can tell you, you can be well into your adulthood and they're still the cool kids and the not so cool kids and which group are you in is is still one of those things, right? And so some of us here may actually still wrestle with that. I think all of us at some point wrestle with it, 
because even the cool kids every once in a while go, do they realize I'm just a poser? <laughs> Why does everyone want to be around me? Um, I know what's really inside and, and I'm pretty insecure. We want to be wanted, we want to be needed, we want to be included, but that doesn't always work out the way we would hope. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, there are times when we are greatly sought out, and um, that probably is true, at least for most of us, at one point or another in our lives, moms, right, you're the most valuable people in the world, and you are constantly being sought out. Mom, 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 you've heard that. Right? Most of us, even if we're not moms, we have settings or seasons where people are always wanting to be around us, but one of the questions we ask is why? Is it, is it because you want to be around me or is it because you want something from me or need something from me? And if it happens to be your children, well, okay, that's, you, you kind of signed up for that and, and, and that's wonderful, although there's probably still times you'd like to be able to say, need somebody else for a few minutes. I need you not to need me. I, I did an experiment this last week, and I just looked at my email for just pick two days randomly, and to evaluate the emails that I get. And I found that on those two days, 79.7% of my emails were intrusive from people who had no relationship with me, who were wanting something from me. They were just looking for what they could get. Now, some of the emails would start off with words like, I've got great news for you, but the great news is I'm hoping you'll listen to what I'm asking because the great news is actually for me. If you do this, I'll get my commission, I'll get my quota, whatever, right? And I don't sign up for a lot of things. I clean off my cookies periodically. I unsubscribe. I'm, I'm not surfing a lot and still overwhelmingly, 80% of my emails were from people who had absolutely no claim, absolutely no relationship, just looking for stuff from me. Of the other 20%, which is people who do have a claim on me, a lot of them were making claims, right? Here's what I want, here's what I want, here's what I want. And that's okay, because we're in relationship. That's the way relationships work. I need things from you, you need things from me. But I'm sure you can relate that there are times you just wish that wasn't first thing on everyone's mind right now. What can I get? Because it's not really you want to be with me, you want what I have. I imagine you can relate probably to both of those in one level or another. And what I want to suggest and and walk us through as we look at this passage this morning is that Christmas is God's big pushback on that. It is his big pushback on nobody wants you. You don't measure up. You're not really a part. You're third place and there's nobody in front of you. We just arbitrarily said that so that we can be done with you. It's God's big pushback on the only time people want you is because of what they can get from you. Those dynamics may work in our world, but those are not dynamics that are true with God. And when we look at Christmas, the series itself is called When God Was Born, because there was a time and a place where God chose to be born into this world as a baby and grow up as a regular human man, like us in every way, except for sin. And when he chose that, there were things that he showed. He was born for certain things. He was born to rule. He's born to conquer. This week we're gonna look at the fact that he was born to reveal. He was born to reveal things that were not well known, not fully known, or maybe some of them not even known at all in a practical way until he stepped onto the scene. So Hebrews 1 and John 1 both are very clearly passages that talk about when Jesus came. Here's what he came 
to do. Um, let's just read Hebrews 1 first, verse 1 through 3. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then he launches into the main argument of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better than, better than the angels, better than Moses, better, right, and we're not gonna get into that part. We're gonna just stop with this opening section that says Jesus is God's final word. He's the ultimate revelation. He came to do what even the prophets were not able to fully do. Let me read that through one more time slowly so we can fix that basic stuff in our minds. There's actually a lot of overlap with John 1, and so we'll be able to call that up. You can keep your finger there and refer back to it as you need to, but I'm gonna move us to John 1 after we read it through one more time. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Turn over to John chapter one, please. We're gonna read uh, selected verses out of the first 18. This section weaves together the story of Jesus and the story of John the Baptist, and we're gonna just kind of bracket John the Baptist for the moment. He's integral to the, the flow of the book of John, but we don't need to focus on him um, for our purposes this morning. So uh, let's start in verse one. This is about Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, skip down to verse nine. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." Skip down to verse 16. For from him, uh, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus comes into the world, is the creator of the world. He comes into the world, he becomes like us. He tabernacles among us. That's the word actually used there when it talks about him taking on flesh. He tabernacles among us. And kind of, that's a a hot link to the Old Testament saying, remember what happened back then? Keep that in mind here. God is now doing something fresh, but it's linked to what's gone before. And 
He's come to reveal God in fresh ways. Now, both passages, as we look at them, they talk about how God has been revealed. One, um, one thing that each passage is soaked in is the idea of creation itself, right? He is the one who has created everything and is all sustained by the word of his power. John says uh, he created everything. Nothing was made that he didn't make. Right? And, and we, when we think about God, when we want to know God, certainly there's a revelation that's made for us in the created order. Psalm 19, for instance, says that the heavens tell God's glory. Or Romans 1 tells us that his, um, his divine nature and his eternal power have been revealed in what is made. So there, there's a way of knowing God just by looking around at what we see. Right? I, I look up and I can't really see you in the balcony very well because of the glare of these lights. And those of you that are locking, walk, watching online, I can't, I, can't, I can't see you at all, but you can see me. And the things that are keeping me from seeing you but allowing you to see me are things that God created. Not just the light fixture and the metal it's made out of or the, the TV and the broadcasting that's done, but actually the, the electrons, the, uh, the stuff, the light, the photons, right? The quarks that those things are made of. God came up with that. He created that. And in the fact that he created those things, we can say, wow, God's incredible. He's amazing. He thought of things that wouldn't even have occurred to me. He created something out of nothing. He's got incredible complexity and yet incredible elegance and simplicity, beauty and order, all kinds of things that we can, we can infer about God from his creation. He's powerful. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's wise. He, there's all these, all these realities that we can see just by thinking about a leaf or the air that we're breathing or the fact that we are actually thinking ourselves. Right? We live in an age where we talk a lot about AI and how far is it going to go and, and I don't know. I mean, that's an important question. I do, I am convinced of one thing. It will not actually become I. It will pseudo intelligent its way, but it will never become a sentient being. That's something that God himself has done for us. I am aware and self-aware in ways that other creatures and things aren't because God did that. Right? God came up with that. God invented that. God bestowed that. God created, and as I look at his creation, there's so many things that I can understand. But that's not a complete picture. Right? I can look at God's beauty and majesty and power, but I, I have questions about his heart that I need answered. For instance, I can go lay out in the sun and bask in the warmth of its rays, and those same rays can give me a melanoma that could take my life. Right? I could enjoy the scent of a rose that has been eulogized in poetry, and that same scent could trigger a migraine. I could enjoy something that's rich, say a cashew, and, and enjoy the richness of its flavor, but it could also raise hives, or bring anaphylaxis, or death. Right? There's a lot of things I can see from God, but there's some questions I have about what's he really like? What's his heart? Really important questions, too. And they don't show up very clearly in creation at all, but when Jesus comes onto the scene, that's God with a face. That's God who can be hugged. That's God who can be interacted with. That's God whose heart can be seen in ways that are accessible to me because I can relate. 
Right, so there's things that Jesus reveals more fully or more accurately, more completely, creation couldn't do. It's the same thing with the created order. Uh, it, it's the same thing with the prophetic word. Right? The prophetic word is God's actual words about himself to us and about what's right and wrong and, and all of these wonderful things he can even tell about his heart, but they're things that we cannot get simply from the word. If you look, for instance, at Jeremiah 31, it talks about distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant, and part of that is how we will actually know God, right? It, it, there's this reality that at, with the new covenant comes this level of knowledge of God, this understanding of God that's within, right? It's written on our hearts in a way that it's not written on our pages. And we know that that new covenant was ushered in. Jesus said so himself the night before his crucifixion. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant that I'm gonna pour out for you. This inaugurates that reality, something shifted. In Hebrews, we hear that God spoke at various times and in various ways to our fathers through the prophets, wonderful truths of his word. But now the ultimate revelation is Jesus. John is actually very saturated in that same idea, it's just a little bit more subtle. He talks about Jesus tabernacling among us and reminds us of the whole Exodus story. There's this grace and truth phrase that shows up in John 1 that is almost certainly intended to point us back to a consistent teaching in the Old Testament and particularly prominent in the story of Moses about God's loving kindness and his covenant faithfulness that's revealed through Moses. But perhaps most most tellingly, there's this reality in John 1 saying there's a greater revelation here in uh, verse, let me find it here, verse 16, if you want to look there, it says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now that is the <clears throat> most popular translation even from very careful translations, and it is a true bit of theology that in Jesus, God's grace just keeps piling up. Grace upon grace upon grace, there's things that he just keeps pouring out. That's a true thing. I have become convinced, and there's a lot who are, that that's probably not the best translation in this case, though. And it actually doesn't fit the context as well as it does fit the context in the overall theology. It doesn't fit the context of John as well as what you have a footnote for. If you look at, at least in mine, which would match, if you're in the same version, it would match. It would say, for from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace, and there's a little number five there. That type of footnote isn't referring me to a potential cross-reference. That is referring me to something that is very concrete in the original text. And if you look at your footnotes, It'll say grace upon grace could be translated instead grace in place of grace. And that's probably the way it should be translated. That's a little confusing. What does that mean? Well, that speaks exactly to this dynamic of Jesus revealing things that weren't revealed before. Moses, God through Moses in the original covenant did a grace for us. Sometimes we draw too hard a distinction between grace and law. There is a legitimate distinction to draw there, but the covenant of Moses, the, the first covenant, was still saturated in grace. It was a grace from God that he gave that they could interact with him this way. Nobody was ever actually made righteous by simply obeying commands. 
right? There's a grace reality that underpins this whole thing. But now in Jesus, there's a new grace. That grace has been overwhelmed. It's been absorbed in. It's been extended. It's been, it's, it's just been, immer- it's been immersed in this new grace, this, this new grace of this new covenant. Jesus has brought a whole new revelation that takes what we learned about God and what we learned about his character and what we learned about his heart through the words of the prophets. And it says, whoa, this is way bigger. Here's something way more important. Here's something way more significant. Here's a way fuller, way more complete, way clearer picture. Look at Jesus. All right, so there's this idea that Jesus has come to reveal. Part of that revelation is clarifying. Part of that revelation is enhancing. Part of that revelation is reinforcing. And part of that revelation really is distinctive. And that's where I want to spend the last few minutes because what is, what is um, alluded to and referred to and described at, at a modest level in the prophetic word from before is shown in spectacular display in Jesus. What is it distinctively about Jesus coming into the world that is revealed about God? Not his greatness, not his beauty, not even his justice. The gospel has a foundation in justice, but God's justice would have been served just as fully if he had just wiped us out. The story of Jesus in the gospel, what does that reveal? And I would suggest to you one way of looking at it that's probably comprehensive enough to be really useful is that what's revealed is God pursues me. That's what's revealed. God pursues me. That's what Christmas shows me. God pursues me, and, and he pursues me for relationship, right? If I'm walking through my neighborhood and my neighbor's pit bull gets out and it pursues me, that's not necessarily a joyful moment. I'm not necessarily going to start singing great Christmas carols of, hey, what a joyful moment this is. That's not, that's a scary pursuit, right? The message of Christmas is there's a joyful pursuit. God pursues me for relationship, that's what is uniquely, distinctively, and fully revealed in Jesus. All right, look at John chapter one again. He comes into the world that he created. He's light, revealing to everyone, and his own people don't receive him. They reject him. But some do receive him. And to those who received him, What happens? To those who received him, he brought forgiveness. No, he did, but that's not the focus, is it? To those who received him, he brought sanctification. Well, that's true enough, but that's not the focus. To those who received him, he brought empowerment. Well, there's a lot of things we tend to look at that God brings us, and that's true enough, but that's not the focus. To those who received him, He brought blessing. No, it says to those who received him, he gave the right, he gave the power, he gave the ability to become children of God. He brought relationship of the most intimate, enduring kind. You are mine. You belong to me. And there's a bond that we share that is an inseparable bond. And I have pursued you for that purpose. That's what's revealed in Jesus. 
Now, if we go back to some of the things we were thinking about earlier, that's, that's pretty significant to think God has pursued me for a relationship. Actually, there's, there's two um, kind of refining phrases I'll give for that because I think it's helpful to think in both those terms. He's pursued me for relationship because he wants me. He's pursued me for relationship because he wants me and he's pursued me for relationship because he wants to bless me. He wants me, right? He's not saying, I know you're the only entered in the contest, but you're third place because I don't want to be identified. Don't want you representing. Thanks for the effort, move on. He's not doing that. He's not saying, you're like the little brother or the little sister that's always tagging along. Ah, driving me crazy, but all right, come on, just be quiet. Don't mess this up. You don't really belong, but you're okay. You can be with me. He's not doing that. Right? He's, he's, he's giving adoption. Years and years ago, had some friends that adopted some kids. I have a lot of friends who adopted kids. These friends aren't here anymore, so just to make that clear. And uh, they had some natural-born children and some adopted kids. And as the kids were growing up, the adopted kids had this existential crisis season where it's like, well, we're not really the kids. And so mom and dad worked really, really hard to say, we chose you. We chose you. We went and found you and chose you. We want you. We selected you. And they did such a good job at that that the adopted kids are like, this is cool. And the natural born kids said, we want to be adopted. How come we're not adopted? And they have to say, okay, we adopt you too, right? We chose you, we just we followed a different process. We'll get to that when you're a teenager, or probably, hopefully, before you're a teenager. That's too late. But parents, that's too late. You talk to them long before that. But they weren't ready for that conversation. So we chose you, all of you. When God adopts us, when Jesus comes into the world so that we can be adopted, Right? And all of these other things actually are part of that adoption process. The purification for sins is necessary so that I can be adopted. It's not the end, it's an, a means to the end of the relationship. Right? His sanctifying of me makes me able to be in relationship and then to express a relationship. The point is, you are mine. I chose you, I adopted you. You're not a leftover. Years ago, I was leading a group that no longer exists here at this church, and um, one of the snarkier members of the group came up to me one Sunday and he said, I got a new name for our group. What's that? We're the leftovers. But that he meant, um, we just kind of don't fit, and you know, maybe we always feel like nobody really wants us, but thanks for creating a home for us, and sometimes we feel like leftovers. We're not. Cool kids goofy kids, whatever kids we are, we're God's kids. Jesus came to make that real and what he reveals is God is a God who pursues us because he wants us. Not because we've impressed him or done anything to earn something, right? That leads us actually to our second point here. God pursues me because he wants to bless me. He comes in order that I might be made his child. Both passages talk a great deal about him being the creator. 
And if we just stop and think about creation, go out and look at the grass. And think, I mean, it's simple, right? It's just under our feet. We mow it. We can smell it. Sometimes it makes us sneeze. If it's St. Augustine, it gets all places it's not supposed to. If it's Marathon, it's not where it's supposed to be. I wish it would go there, right? I mean, it's grass. It's just part of regular everyday life. But think about it. Think about its color. Think about its texture. Think about how it works. Think about how it grows. God invented that. He invented the dirt on which it exists. He invented the ball of dirt. He invented the space in which that, he invented all of that stuff. He invented you, he invented me. What, what does he possibly need? Where is there a lack in God's life where he's saying, man, I just wish Robert would wake up because I really need his help. He's facing that way and I need him looking this way. What on earth do I bring to God? Right? <laughs> uh, a phrase that I have thought of for this sermon that I, I hope to keep around. How stupid am I? Right? That's a good life motto. If, if you mean it well meaning, right? You can be real hard on yourself and that's not helpful, but really, how stupid am I? When I start thinking God needs me or I gotta step up or I'm gonna impress God somehow, like God's really impressed. You haven't seen this before, God, look at this. They can do this, I can do this, here I am. It's like, what am I doing? How stupid am I? Now, it's not gonna be the, the catchphrase in the next worship song that's gonna hit the big time. It's not gonna be in some update of a Christmas carol. I guarantee you, you can't go down to Hobby Lobby and find how stupid am I painted on some board there that you're supposed to hang on your wall or cross-stitched on some pillow. Certainly not a bumper sticker on a car. Can you imagine driving around town as a guy in the car that has a bumper sticker, how stupid am I? I'm sure people would be telling you all along the way in their unique ways, sometimes even using sign language, right? How stupid am I is not something we naturally think of, but it's actually a very helpful phrase if it's, if it's said in a healthy way because I am so stupid sometimes. Why would I think that God is desperate for my help or that I'm somehow going to impress him or that he needs this or it's about what I'm gonna contribute here. How stupid am I? He is the creator of the universe. I have exactly nothing that he needs. Which means his choosing me is all about what he wants. And it may feel kind of devaluing and degrading initially when I come to wrestle with that idea of how stupid am I but in the end it's actually very freeing and very anchoring. God chose me, not because he needs something I've got, because I need what he's got and he wants to give it. He chose me, he pursues me because he wants to bless me. My standing, my security, doesn't rest with my performance. And it's not anchored in personality. And it's anchored in paternity. It's not performance. It's not personality. It's paternity. And if you're listening carefully, the last phrase totally shifts. It's not my performance, not my personality. It's his fatherhood. That puts the emphasis where it actually belongs. The emphasis, the security, the anchoredness, the peace that I can enjoy lies with him. And that's what he's offering. 
Sometimes I can be pretty dumb. Sometimes I can run and run and run to try to impress him, try to earn from him what he's already giving. How stupid am I? Now, when we talk about just God's love and acceptance and the fact that it all lies with him, something that naturally ought ought to rise up in our minds is okay. I know that's true, but what about things like holiness and mission? Those things don't matter. God loves me. He's chosen me. I'm his child, so that's it. Don't need to worry about holiness. Don't need to worry about mission and life on purpose, being a world changer, those kinds of things that we talk about. Well, yes and no. It's not that those are wrong focus. It's that we wrongly focus on them. Think about this. Both who I become, the holiness that exhibits in my life and the texture and character of my life as it's seen in this world is ultimately to bring him glory, right? That's, that's really what it's about. The mission that he's called me to in loving in his name and ultimately proclaiming the gospel so that people will come to know him and also be his children, that's ultimately about his glory, right? So if it's about his glory, then at its very heart and core, it can't be reliant on my self-reliance. It can't be rooted simply in my effort, because that doesn't bring him glory. That becomes about me. Holiness and mission are not a burden that I shoulder. They are a birthright that I share in. Jesus said, go make disciples. Last thing he talked about, really, really important. But he says, I'm with you. It's my authority. Wait until the Spirit comes upon you because this isn't what you're doing. This is what I'm doing and you get to be a part of it. You want to change the world? Great. Go change the world. Do what I'm doing. By the way, I will assign to you the magnitude of what that is. And for some of you, that's just live a quiet, simple, faithful life. Isn't that what we're told to pray for? In 1 Timothy? Go change the world, absolutely. Go do risky, daring things, sure, if that's God's calling. Whatever the calling is, though, he's the one who's carrying the burden, and he's inviting me to join him in it. He doesn't need my help. He values my company. He is never impressed by me, but he is always delighted with me. And if I could flip that in my mind, that would be so helpful. Holiness, same thing. Where does my holiness come from? I am being transformed into the image of Jesus by God's predestined plan and the power of his spirit. Not by my hard work, my spiritual disciplines, and my faithfulness over time. Those have a role. They play in, but they are in the supporting role. It is God doing it. I have been made to share in the divine nature, says in, in, in Peter, right? Second Peter 1. That's something that's been bestowed upon me. I am the saint 
I have been sanctified. I am new creation. These are all things that are found in relationship. And so often I go through life trying to shoulder a burden that's not mine to shoulder. I do need to be engaged in holiness. I do need to be engaged in mission. How I live does matter, but it's always starting and finishing with Jesus. The way I approach it is never, God, you can count on me. It's never that. This is what needs to be done. These are the people need to hear. This is the service that needs to happen. You can count on me, I'll do that. This is how I need to be. This is how I need to change. You can count on me, I'll work on that. It's never rooted in you can count on me. It is always rooted in I am counting on you. I'm counting on you. Right, so when Jesus comes into the world, he comes to reveal that God is actually the one pursuing. And he's pursuing because he wants me. And he's pursuing because he wants to bless me. He's not looking for what he can get from me. He's looking for what he can bestow upon me. And that is a filial, familial relationship. We'll be family. I'm his child. And with that, then, comes the ability to do the other things that are well worthy of time, just not this morning. Because this morning we want to keep coming back to this idea, God chose me, God pursued me, God wants me, God wants to bless me. I need to stop trying to impress him and be content that I delight him. As we go through this Christmas season, one of the things Jesus shows us is that God is for us. God is pursuing us because he wants us, because he wants to bless us. Our job is to receive that. John 1 talked about Some people didn't, some people rejected it. So the first place for us to talk about how we respond is have we responded? It's actually very difficult to come to faith in Christ because it involves dying. It involves my death, right? There's nothing to do other than die. I am so addicted to being my own little God and controlling my own little world and I'm so used to saying this is what should happen, this is what shouldn't happen. And to receive what God is offering, I have to say, you're God, I'm not. I surrender, blindfolded, hands up, surrender. And I believe Jesus has done everything. And I'm just gonna receive it. He died for me, he died to death that I should have died. I'm under your condemnation, and there's no way for me to get out from under that. So he took care of that. I am mortal and frail and foolish and will continually fall into sin and he's made it possible for me to be your child, have your spirit and be carried through life and have your grace work out moment by moment, season by season. I'm gonna trust that. I'm not gonna try to impress you. How dumb am I really? I mean, come on. Right, that's the first thing. Have I, have I really received the grace of God? And that's a question for you to really process. Have you really received it? Have you really trusted? Have you really surrendered? Because that's where it all starts. Then if that's the case, the thing that I think we need to do 
at least for today, at least for this moment and this message, is rest and relish. Stop trying. Stop running. Stop being frenetic. There's time and a place to go hard after things. But I have to start by saying, God's got me. I am his. He pursued me. This was his idea. He made me his child. He's not impressed, and I don't have to impress him. I know he delights in me. And I'm going to delight in that. For some of us, there's going to be a great freedom in just resting in that. For some of us, there's a great freedom in, in anchoring to say, here's a place that I'm actually fully safe. I think we're all pretty insecure. I think some of us know it, live there all the time, and that's really hard. Some of us kind of keep moving through life. Some of us aren't wired to really think about it. We're doing okay. I mean, if, if I can be vulnerable about me for a minute, right? I'm not actually one who's typically insecure, do pretty well. I mean, if, if, if I can just be honest, you know, what I do for a living, I'm... I would be described by a lot of people as pretty successful at it. It's gone pretty well and things have happened and you've been able to be a part of that and you're pretty good at it and you know, I'm a pretty sharp guy and, and people tend to want to be around me and blah, 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 blah. And okay, first off, whatever I am is because of God's grace. But secondly, even as one who's not overly introspective and not prone to be insecure, sometimes I just go, who am I fooling? I'm such a poser. Insecurity is a big thing. And from my experience working with people, I'm actually way less insecure than most. So if it's a big thing in my life, it's got to be a really big thing in a lot of people's lives. What freedom is there in saying, here is a place and here is a person, and this is the foundational relationship, the one from which everything else takes its frame, that is absolutely safe and secure. I don't have to impress him. I don't have to do anything. He chose me. He pursued me. And he didn't do it for what he's going to get. He did it so that he could bestow on me this family relationship. I think that's a place worth sitting in periodically. Now, for, day, for today, that would be my encouragement. Don't walk away with here. I got to do, I got to do this. He chose you. He pursued you. Rest in that. Relish that. Because that's the God we serve. That makes it safe then for me in my feeble little ways to do stuff. If I actually had to impress him, I'd be in really, really deep trouble. I don't. Praise God for that. I'm going to ask the ushers to come and take our offering and I want to pray for us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for being the one who perfectly reveals the Father. Nobody's seen him but you, and you reveal him perfectly. You are the exact imprint, the perfect representation. We can see who God truly is because you are God in the flesh. Thank you for one of the things that you have revealed that is so profound. You pursue us because you want us and you want to bless us. Lord, we need that. At our best, 
We just don't have anything to offer you. And we are so seldom at our best. What a joy to know that that's okay. That you'll do the changing. We, we cooperate, Lord. There's time and place for us to work hard at this. We don't want to forget that. But for right now, we just want to say thank you. We want to celebrate your abundance in our lives like the prodigal's father who just wants to throw a party. May that joy fill us today. And Lord, as we give these gifts, they're just an overflow. They're things that you've already given to us. Would you use them for the sake of your name and for the good of us and other people, people who are yours now and people who are not yet? Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.